every other Sunday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Today on the show, I have a guest who is no stranger. Her name is Kenyatta Thompson, is Director of Organizing at Cattell Center, based in Hartford, Connecticut. The Cattell Center works to strengthen the people, policy, institutions, and movements that advance equity, health, and justice for everyone. The organization's three main interrelated goals are ending mass criminalization, mass incarceration, and the war on drugs. Today on the show, the focus is on women, this being Women's History Month, in particular, black women. And if you're not of black heritage, you're still welcome to listen because this should be a learning situation. Kenyatta, welcome to What's Your Point? Indeed. Thanks. Thanks for having you. Okay. Uh, how have you been um, personally? How has the COVID impact you since the inception last year this time? you've lost friends and family members to COVID-19? Yes, I have, unfortunately. And uh, my condolences to you. Thank you. How has it affected your work at Qatar? In a strange way, having personally lost people due to COVID-19 and then watching what has also happened within our communities, if anything, it's invigorated the work that we're doing like you stated at the onset of the call, to advance equity, health, and justice for all. Quite honestly, many of our members at the onset of the pandemic, and when I say members, we're a member-based organization, meaning that our members help to drive and shape the work that we do and give our work a direction. Many of our members were also impacted and continue to be impacted from COVID-19, whether it is losing family members or losing jobs or just their entire lives having to be shifted but again, in a strange way, because we were going through this crisis, it offered an opportunity, I think, for not just us at Catal, but I think throughout the state, other groups as well, to tackle some of the things that undergird the system that we're currently living in. And really, if anything, COVID-19 has really just shown how necessary it is to continue to organize to change the different systems that we currently have because they're not working. Um, so just briefly, even at the onset of the pandemic, I and mean, I'll focus on Connecticut because all we're both in New York City, New York State, and Connecticut as well. But in Connecticut, at the onset of the pandemic, we moved to do a lot of our events virtually since we cannot be, excuse me, since we cannot be in person together. Even though we're physically distant, we maintained, we maintained our 
organization. And so we moved a lot of things physically um, from a physical environment to a virtual environment. And we continue to organize. Um, some of the earliest things we did at the onset of the pandemic was call out the fact that there was not, and to this date, still have not been a comprehensive COVID-19 plan for our incarcerated loved ones within the Connecticut Department of Corrections. So, again, through all of the horrific things that have happened in 21, 2020, it has really invigorated us to continue to organize and continue to advance solutions and make so and make it so that our people, especially those who are incarcerated and their loved ones, aren't just suffering and waiting in silence without any sort of plan from the Department of Corrections. So 2020 and the COVID-19 pandemic organizationally has definitely helped us to continue the work that we're doing and make sure that we aren't leaving people behind. So the last time you were on the show, you were a community organizer at Cattell. Now you're director of organizing. You have been promoted, and congratulations to you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really excited. And um, so it must be a huge challenge for the community organizers to be going out in the field to do their work. How, is, how has COVID affected them? Because you're lazing with them. really has challenged a lot of the organizing that we've done. And the main way that we used to organize was through relational organizing. And so that means door knocking, passing out flyers, tabling, meeting people in their community for one-on-one -on -one conversations, walking and finding people who are on the streets, because that's how we meet people. You got to go where people are. And in this, this digital environment or in the virtual environment that we're now engaged in, you can't go out as much. Um, and so our organizers um, have gone out incredibly limited since the pandemic began. And when there are a significant rise in cases, we ask our organizers not to go out because we want to make sure, like, health is the number one most important thing for us, the health and safety of our staff, the health and safety of our members, the health and safety of other community members. So we've had to shift and learn and grow as an organization and really start to rely on digital organizing practices to meet people. So this includes making sure that we're actively using social media and making sure that we are connecting with people who may not, we may not normally be able to connect with. So our organizers have had to shift and when thinking about social media, they've used different social media platforms, learn the differences between the social media platforms so that they can you know, find certain people. And what I mean by that is just, you know, we learned a lot about Facebook and how Facebook operates and who's on Facebook, which are your supporters. We've learned a lot about Instagram, which is people who are under 40. We've learned a lot about Twitter, which are a prime place for elected officials and for um, legislators and uh, other people. But even outside of social media, that's just one element of digital organizing. We've also started to use our website more frequently. We've started to use other organizing platforms digitally. Um, and we've even, again, started to rely more on making sure that we're calling people because not everyone has access. Like, there are some places right now in Connecticut where broadband internet access is not, um, like, uh, widespread. And so we're making sure that we're checking in on members who may not have access to the broadband internet and still including them. Um, and also, just to be quite honest, we've had to do a lot of rowing and running with our members. So it means all of us now at this point are pretty proficient in Zoom. 
serious situation here in the country. Just recently, the state of Georgia passed sweeping voter suppression law, which include it will be illegal to hand food, including water, to anyone who is standing in a line waiting to vote. You know, that will impact people. And we're here focusing on black women today. That would impact people. What kind of law? Isn't that Jim Crow kind of law to ask people not to give anyone water or food? People who are waiting to vote in those long lines. Absolutely. It is a reiteration of a immensely racist law to suppress people's vote. It's the audacity of it all, to be quite honest, especially after a year of intense uprisings, the largest uprisings that our, our country has ever seen for the rights of African Americans and against anti black racism. It's ridiculous, quite honestly, what's happening. And it is going to impact black women uniquely because of the roles in which we play in our communities. Black women are, there are many black women who are the heads of households, and so if they are working, whether that's a virtual job or an in-person job, and then going to stand online to vote after a long day, and you can't even give someone water or food. I know when I voted a couple of months ago, I stood in line at my local polling place, and we had folks handing out food. So if something like that were to happen in Connecticut, that is... We can't even imagine the implications that it's going to have on top of the already, in many ways, like, punitive, like, voter suppression laws that we already currently have on the books and the ways in which our voting system operates, quite honestly. So these people in Georgia realize, with the two senators being Democrats, they realize that in order to win, they have to suppress the votes, and, and, and they mainly suppress votes of black people. And it's a dangerous thing. We cannot call this country a democracy if we continue to do that. And as you rightly said, and that's why I brought it up, because this will have a huge impact on black women in that state. Absolutely. It is, you know, it's not anything new. No. This is what our country, unfortunately, has done. And thinking about even the timing of it with the historic vote in Georgia in November and Stacey Abrams and company giving her all the praise that she absolutely deserves. This is a direct pushback against what we were able to do in Georgia, and quite frankly, what we were able to do throughout the country to secure some progressive legislators and to 
continue to push back against white supremacy that is just showing up in our political system. The struggle continues because um, the struggle of black women in the United States since slavery has not ended. And um, so we, we look at equal pay for equal work for women. And um, we see that women are getting just cents on the dollar that men are earning. So what do you think could be the way to address such a, an issue? To address the lack of equal pay for women and for black women in particular, it unfortunately, and I only say unfortunately because we can't address one single issue and think that it will be okay, we have to address multiple issues. So to address the lack of equal pay for women, you also have to address the fact that there are incredibly um, high rates of health issues for women. Why I bring up the health issues for women is just I'm thinking about the ways in which black women are kept out of the work environment and continue to get paid low wages, thinking about like the health care that women uniquely have, thinking about the ways in which women are kept out of getting higher positions. And so thinking about the glass ceiling and that glass ceiling that exists for um, a glass ceiling that exists for like white women is a totally different glass ceiling that exists for black women. And so addressing the disparities in the pay rates of black women, we need to start just addressing the ways in which black women in this country are unfortunately kept as second-class citizens. Like, and it requires like a radical shift in how we it requires a radical shift in both laws that impact black women. Um, and I think about policy just because it is an important thing, but it also requires like a shift in the status quo for us to see black women as like just straight up whole human beings. On the show today, my guest is Kenyatta Thompson, director of organizing at the Cattell Center. The focus is on black women in the American society today. I am Garnet Ankle. And let's continue along. Yes, so I, I want to give you your title because it's you. It's you. So during or before women's suffrage, white women were not allowed to vote, only rich white men. But at that same time, black women were not seen. Black women were not considered to be women. They were less than human. So expound on that for us. Mm, thank you. It's, it's an unfortunate part of our history, but you accurately stated it. Even when black, even when white women gained the right to vote, black women still were not able to vote. There were black women who pushed for women's suffrage during the time. And I think a lot about Ida B. Wells just because of the work that she had done was writing about what was happening during the time and doing reporting, and yet she was even still not even seen as a full human being. And so this is the legacy, unfortunately, that it still ha that the United States has, and it's a legacy, unfortunately, that continues to this day. So when thinking about the ways in which voter suppression rights have ha voter suppression has happened in the country, and thinking about the ways that black women have been treated in the workplace in the country, unfortunately, it's like we can't even get certain rights because people don't even see it as human enough to deserve those rights. And this is also why if you look at the movements over the last few decades and the movement for the rights of black people and African Americans, people of the African diaspora, who have been leading those movements? It has been black women. It has been queer black women. It has been black 
women and femmes. And so I'm including, of course, when I say black women, that is inclusive of trans women because they have been at the forefront of this movement. And, you know, as an organization, we continue and always develop the leadership of black women. And so something that like we've seen and like we've learned over the last couple of like, months and just thinking about this pandemic, like just trust black women. Black women will be the ones that ensures that all of us are free. And I know this was like a slight deviation from your original question, but it's important to name this and thinking about where we have come as black women and how people have seen us and the fact that we just do not take that and continue to organize and ensure that all of us are free. So what will it take for black women in the American society today to be treated as equals to their white counterpart and also to men? Because even today, black women, as we said earlier, are still at the bottom of the pyramid. What can be done? Because we've had democratic presidents, we have had democratic presidents came and and we're seeing it's even getting worse. So what next can be done to not only address that problem, but to alleviate the, the, the problem of um, the, the challenges, that particular challenge for black women? Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you bring this up as well because the first black woman uh, vice president this past week actually visited Connecticut um, so it's interesting that we're having this conversation and thinking about black women in power. Um, to answer your question around what can black women do to be seen as equal, I want to even reframe that question and talk about the ways in which black women can continue just to be seen in general. Part of what I think is unique about as black women, and part of the thing that I think will get us to this place where black women are not seen in this way is like, we just have to continue to show up as our full selves and not demand a seat at anybody else's table and create our own table. And even in creating our own table, it doesn't mean that we're necessarily trying to equate our freedom or equate our own liberation and like look to be seen exactly as like our white counterparts, but it's just, we just want to be seen as the whole human beings that we are. And so again, part of that means like showing up as your full self and being unapologetic about that. Like that means showing up and I'm going to just keep it light for a second, but also talk about seriousness. It's like, it means showing up with your natural hair. It means showing up with your hair if it's permed, if that's what you want to do. It means showing up in the box braids and showing up as you. It means, going for the job even if you feel as though you may not be the most qualified and like this is the thing that women do women will look at a job application and because they don't hit all the different required qualifications they won't apply for the job this is i think especially true for black women it's like no sis apply for that job because even if the job doesn't hire you that is an experience you will gain and you will have more knowledge and insight and you are amazing and you can do that and i think you're, we see that in looking at the black women who we look towards as, you know, leading this work or doing this work. They are showing up as their full selves, and they're not necessarily trying to gain a seat at anyone's table, but they're interested in creating other tables. And so creating those other tables will also start to 
stamp out those voices that say we are not enough. Um, and I've just been thinking about this, like, we are the global majority. Like, straight up and down, people of color are the global majority. And so if we're looking in terms of, like, the United States context or even the Connecticut context, and Connecticut is always an interesting state because of the demographic, racial demographic in Connecticut near the demographic of um, the United States. And so, like, both nationally, black people make up, like, roughly 13% of the population, both nationally and locally in Connecticut. But even thinking on a global scale, again, we are a global majority. And the more that black women, not just, you know, in Connecticut, but throughout the world and in their own truths and continue to create those tables, that is the way in which we will be seen and fully seen. Yeah. So in terms of black women in the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer LGBT community, what do you think is happening to black women? And I know you can speak on, on that very clearly. Uh, what, what's the impact of black women inside that, that community? Um, and so, yeah, as a, as a queer black person, just to clarify, like, what's the impact um, that being black within, like, the LGBT spaces, like, has? Or I'm just thinking more widely. Broadly. Hmm. Um. There's a lot of us in the LGBTQ spaces, but in many ways, we are still sometimes the not seen. Um, and I say this, again, as a, a, a queer black person, a queer black woman, um, it sometimes takes a while to be seen. And sometimes there are many of us who are still closeted for obvious reasons. We would never, I would never want anyone, if they feel like they're in an unsafe situation, to have to you know, the schools or divulge information about themselves that would put them in an unsafe environment. But again, thinking about like the global movements and like the movements in America, not the global movements, although we can look the global movements and thinking of um, our, our comrades across the globe as for black women. We, again, we are some of the most like innovative and creative organizers I've ever seen. <laughs> like straight up and down. And even in LGBTQ, I mean, queer spaces, I use queer just as an umbrella term, it's an easier term for me, and I love the word queer, it, even though we may sometimes be the majority, and I know, I'll just share this from my own personal experience, like, I often will be in a queer space and be the only black, not even only black woman, but like the only black person in that space. So how are you treated? Mm. Are you treated differently because of race? Oh, yeah. It is unfortunate, but absolutely. And especially when it's in a non-black space, and I'm, I'm using the term non-black in particular because I've even been in spaces with other queer people of color, and there's still, they're still a difference. So, there absolutely is still a difference. But, again, this is where I think that the, us as, like, queer black women and, like, queer black femmes, we tend to create, again, some of the most, like, best dynamic and creative spaces, and this extends... I, again, to the organizing realm, and I share that just because I am an organizer, we are just so dynamic. <laughs> I just wanted to share that before moving on. So even within a group that you should feel comfortable as a black woman, you, see, you seem to be treated like a second-class citizen within your own community. Yes, and this is, I think this is true in, in many environments. Like, 
looking at the matrix of domination, um, and I believe that is Pat Hill Collins, and, and talking about the ways in which like our identities are shaped. I can't remove being black from my identity in the same way that I can't remove being a woman from my identity in the same way that I can't remove being queer from my identity. So in some of those other spaces, there may be one identity that shows up more than others. Like, unfortunately, sometimes that means that I may be not treated the greatest. So in thinking about, like, again, some queer spaces, like, I've definitely felt that, like, brushed to the side because the racism is just, the racism jumped out. Um, and I can even, like, identify in many spaces where it's, like, I'm with my, I'm with, like, black folks, and it's all cool, and then here comes the homophobic joke. And then it's, like, here's the homophobia has jumped out. So, yeah, um, yeah you can't remove all of those. Yeah, the homophobic joke should be banned, you know, because, uh, you know, I, I don't joke th th that kind of way. You know, can find other ways to joke, but not to joke at people's sexuality. That's uh -huh. so wrong. So, so wrong. Um, yeah, yeah, so, go, so you're saying something? No, I just agreed with you. It, it, it is not the first time it is, I've heard it. It's probably not going to be the last time I've heard it in my few years. I'm rotating around the sun. Yeah. Mm. So in terms, so you're saying that there is racism within your organization where you should feel comfortable as a black woman. You think that, yes, race is seen because it's a black woman and a white woman or LGBTQ members, but you're saying racism is there. You're not, you don't feel, if you're around white women, you don't feel the sense of unity, of longing, of belonging. Is that what you're saying? Not within the organization. I love working at Capal because we don't we don't stand for any of the nonsense. Yeah, well, um, I'm, no, I'm so, talking within an LGBT setting. Mm, yes. Oh, absolutely. There, I yes, absolutely feel that, and I wouldn't even necessarily say it is that I'm like uncomfortable around white women, but in queer spaces, I'm I'm always just cautious, and I think that is a common thing you'll find, especially with black women, and especially with queer black women. Like we seen it all we've seen um, and, and myself personally i've removed myself from organizing spaces that were deep in homophobia and transphobia straight up and down in the same way that i've also removed myself from queer spaces where the racism was too large to ignore where i've had to say it's, it's time for me to go i can't be around this space anymore and you know, I'm going to say something. Sometime ago when we spoke, I told you, and I just started mentioning queer because you said it. Uh, and a previous LGBT person I had on said the same thing too. Uh, you know, first time queer used to be a bad word, but you embrace it. Why is this embrace? Actually, because of its history. It is, and, and all of this is relative. Um, because if you talk to a, a person who is queer, potentially over a certain age, they will not embrace that word. And I've had, I have had older queers come up to me and say, you don't say that word, like, you know, and I'm like, I, I hear you, I understand why you don't use that word, but this is why I use it. And partially why I use it is because there's so many, being LGBTQIA+, there's so many different sexualities rather than just it's black or white. You're either gay or you're straight. And so queer for me is an all-encompassing word that, one, I get to like reclaim that word that has been used so negatively. 
And two, I get to use it as a way to bring in all of my, again, LGBTQIA plus siblings under the fold and bring us together. So that's why I love the word queer. You're listening to What's Your Point here on WPKN Radio. My guest is Kenyatta Thompson, Director of Organizing at Katal Center. The focus is on black women in the American society today. I am Garnet Ankle. Yeah, so do you wish to, to explain what the word means? Not that I'm laboring it because I just want people, you know, the listener to understand. When you say queer, what do you mean? Queer means a sexuality or a gender identity that exists outside of a heterosexual context and a cisgendered context. And cisgendered, um, it can exist within a cisgendered context, like I'm a cisgendered woman, um, but that is how I identify queer, and I'm including, again, also whether you identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans, um, and there are a number of other letters within the LGBTQIA+, but that is what queer means for me. And again, that's why I like the word. It, it, is, it is a reclaiming and it is an inclusive term that I appreciate. Okay. All right. So uh, the domestic violence against black women in the community, um, any thoughts, any idea of seeing that you work in the community, that kind of thing, do you have people who would come up and talk about domestic violence against them being black? Unfortunately, their domestic violence unfortunately crosses so many different um, it is it, it is a really big problem, but to localize it within the context of black women is something that we've been worried about, honestly, since the pandemic began because of the rates of domestic violence, unfortunately, um, increasing as we are now, many of us are now, you know, forced to quarantine within our homes while things have lifted a little bit in Connecticut. Um, the risk is still there for somebody who is in a domestic violence situation and now have to be in close proximity essentially 24-7 with their abuser. Um, unfortunately for black women, the rates of domestic violence in our communities are rather high. Um, and, and I don't have those rates immediately on me, but I say high in that I can probably talk to five women, black women right now, and one of them potentially have either been a victim of domestic violence or know somebody who's been a victim of domestic violence. Um, I can think of five black women off the top of my head who have been victims of domestic violence, and it's something that we need to take not only just more seriously, but it forces us to think about the ways in which our culture contributes to domestic violence. And unfortunately, we are harmed by the people that we are most closest to, and so thinking in our communities, like we end up being harmed by... Our, like our family members, we end up being harmed in intimate partner violence. We end up being harmed by siblings. And so we need to really think about the ways in which our culture perpetuates this harmful practice of violence against women and then especially violence against black women and just like straight up address the misogyny and sexism that undergirds domestic violence against women. So... There has been, a, would you say, an increase in the cases of domestic violence against black women since the last year, since the COVID-19 
came into being? The early onset of the pandemic, I did some looking into the cases of domestic violence and the reports of domestic violence, and um, I unfortunately don't have those numbers like bifurcated by race, just because like some of the articles and reports I found just talked about the increasing rates of domestic violence for women. But there's no doubt in my mind that unfortunately those cases were also cases of domestic violence against Black women. I think now because our our state has opened up a little bit, it's a little different. In that, again, folks can leave their homes a little more. Um, the cases are still really high, so we got to be cautious of that. But people are able to leave their homes more. We know a lot more about the virus. So, and people now have PPE versus at the onset of the pandemic, we were just struggling with everything. Um, so, again, at the onset, absolutely, like I've seen some of those numbers. And I think now, now it's just up to us to continue to address, again, these things that get to the undercurrent of why there is domestic violence against women and the domestic violence against black women. And, you know, I think there is no reason, there is never a reason, never any reason for someone to hit a woman. You're in a relationship with a woman, there's no reason, no time for that to happen. So I'm just mm -hmm. saying some of the causes they would say would be a, a woman and a woman or whatever it is situation of a man and a woman they're in close proximity to each other they're in a relationship at the same time the virus is going on and they're not able to work they may have lost their jobs and um so frustration and they're frustrated so the man would want to take it out of the woman that kind of thing is that some of the reasons you're finding out there because those end up being excuses. So, like, we are sure We're all stressed. We all have had, all of us, unless you are in the 1% and you have had the ability to quarantine on your own private island, get your own private jet, save your family, all of us in some way have been impacted and we've all been stressed. And I think that what, unfortunately, undergirds, like, even those excuses of, like, oh, well, folks are stressed, they don't have jobs, is the fact that people who don't respect women and the fact that there are many men in our society, and like we just gotta call call it like it is, like there are many black men who don't respect women and are in these relationships with women, and don't know how to not do what you just said, which is not put your hands on a woman, or even thinking of if it's not that type of domestic violence where it's a physical violence, there's also like the mental manipulation or the you know keeping a woman in a relationship and doing the mental gymnastics that you have to do in order to manipulate someone into staying there. And so while I think those are some excuses that people have absolutely shared, again, we've all gone through stress. And so it's just, an un like it's just straight up unacceptable to use that excuse and we have to address so, how men have done with that woman. So, uh, Kenyatta, just speak right now to that lady who is listening with us right now. Speak to her if she's in a situation of domestic violence, that black woman who is battered and bruised. Talk to her first. What she should do or what you would advise her to do. The first thing you should do is just know that you are worthy. And that this is not what love is. Love does not look like handprints or tattered clothing or feeling as though you are the one constantly in the wrong. And so recognizing like your own humanity and the love that you deserve 
this is the time to reach out to you or support that you are familiar with and so, like legitimate support whether that is a sister friend a parent someone that can listen to your situation and also I want to just acknowledge that unfortunately domestic violence is a cycle and so we will often see women get out of terrible situations and end up back in those situations and we can come full circle to what we talked about at the onset of this call which is a lot of times women stay because they they still love that person a lot of times women stay because financially this is a breadwinner and so know that if you do go back it is not your fault but there's always an opportunity to get out of that situation and the first thing to do again is just like know that this is not what love is and you deserve love and you are worthy of love and secondly find those people that are supportive of you that support you unconditionally and that can listen to what your needs may be which is just maybe you need to move maybe you need to be around new people or maybe you just need to excommunicate this person from your life and you need the support of your community to help you to maintain that. And, you know, thank you so much, Kenyatta. It's such a sad commentary to say, you know, if you're in a situation like that as a woman, you call the police, but as a black woman, you might end up dead because the police would come and kill you, murder you, because we've seen that happen over and over again. So yeah. who can she call to say, you know, she's been battered, she want to leave? Because whomever the partner is, is not allowing her, it's as if she's trapped inside that place, physically and mentally. Yeah, some of, so something that happened early on in the pandemic, and this doesn't only happen in the pandemic, our communities have done this consistently, but something that happened, I, I saw a lot during the pandemic is, um, especially women who were in those horrible domestic violence situations and trying to get out, the community would show up and support. Um, and so that can look like straight up and down, if you feel as though you are at risk and your former lover or your former partner tends to come to your house at midnight, have people watch your house and just sit outside. Um, there was a very famous case in um, New Jersey. I, I don't know if it's famous, not famous for me just because of the spaces I'm in, but where a gentleman uh, took matters into his own hands and he camped outside of his neighbor's apartment um, or like uh, his neighbor in the community's apartment for like roughly four or five months until her the abuser stopped coming by the house. And this has also happened in Connecticut where people have taken matters into their own hands and again, not harming anybody, but sometimes just having that presence of another person who has your best interest in heart can deter an abuser from taking advantage of you at this time. And so that's one alternative. And you, you know, you mentioned it, Garnet. Unfortunately, when black women call the police, or black people call the police, the, the police have sometimes taken matters into their own hands, and the person who called the police ended up being the person who's taken out on the body bag. Mm -hmm. Or um, that's unfortunately what happened with Breonna Taylor, where her uh, neighbor just noticed that there was not a, you know, there wasn't movement in her apartment for a few days, felt concerned, called, called um, I believe, the police, and next thing you know, the police came into her apartment and unfortunately took her life. This has happened several times over... Um, and there are communities that, for lack of a better word, I won't use the word police, but there are communities who also set up safe measures for each other. It is, um, I think, shout out to the, I think it's the Oakland Power Project, where they have set up 
a community and a resource and a phone number where if you are in a situation and you don't want to call the police, there's like a community hotline where you call and you get access to um, this like, group and they determine who needs to come, whether it's someone who does violence intervention work, whether it's a social worker who comes, whether it's another member of the community. But this way you don't always have to call the police. Now, there are going to be times when, unfortunately, this is a system that we live in, and so there are some other recommendations. Um, mainly, if you can get to the police station, go there rather than calling the police because you now invite police into your community, and having police in our community is not safe for us. Um, but they, so there's still a risk in going to a police station, but those are ways to reduce the potential harm that can come from it if your last recourse is to go to the police and file, let's say, a restraining order and do something like that. Um, so there are a number of ways that we can continue to support each other as community, and then, again, there are other ways that we can work to reduce the harm that the state can potentially cause to us when we have no other option but to rely on the state for assistance. It's a sad commentary, though, where, when we can say it's not safe to call the police because, as a black person, one may end up dead. It's, it's very sad. It, a, I would, the only thing I'm going to say to that is when has there ever been a time where a black person can call the police and not end up dead? The history of policing in our country, unfortunately, um, policing and incarceration, unfortunately, comes from um, both the slave codes which were laws that were enacted to ensure that um, enslaved people were, you know, bagged and tagged, for lack of a better word, um, and the Black Code. And then even prior to that, when um, the colonizers first came over to this country and harmed the indigenous communities here, um, I don't know the name off the top of my head, but there were patrols of those colonizers who would find indigenous people, and if they were in areas where they were attempting to colonize, they would harm these people and the indigenous folks here. So, like, that is the history of the modern police force, both rooted in the genocide of the indigenous people in this country and then rooted in the enslavement and genocide of people of the African diaspora of this country. So I, just, I, I share all that to be like, I don't know when it has ever been different, different for us. So, so they were, they were, they came into force to force out black people's lives and to, to keep black people in their place, so to speak. So, yes, black and indigenous people. Yes, and uh, we know that domestic violence impacts white people as well, but the focus today is on black women. Uh, so have you heard of instances where in a lesbian situation, a black woman is beaten by her black lover or a black woman is beaten by her lover, whomever race that is? Have you had situations like those? Unfortunately, domestic violence is rampant in the queer community as it is with straight people. Um, it, is, it is unfortunate and it takes on, I think, sometimes a really insidious manner because people will often see queer relationships and not see them as like, real or, oh, that's not something to really be worried about. Or if it's two men who are in a relationship and one of them expresses, hey, I'm being, you know, harmed by my partner, people's response will be, well, you're two men. They could be able to throw a punch. And it's like, but love isn't punches. Love should not be that way. So there's definitely been domestic violence in the queer community in the same way that there are domestic violence in other communities. And I, again, it might sound 
it might sound strange, but again, the roots of some of those domestic violence is definitely racism, sexism and misogyny. The idea that um, if there is uh, in a, a gay relationship a gentleman who may be a little more feminine, the idea that he deserves to be harmed is just unacceptable. And like, I'm going to keep it real, there are some like queer women who definitely take on those those tropes of misogyny. There's a, a line in a song by an artist, I, a queer artist out of D.C., B. Steadwell, um, and she, in one of her songs, she had named queer women trying on misogyny and call it something new. And that line has always stuck out to me because domestic violence is a serious issue, again, not just in straight communities, but in queer communities as well. And so, again, we all have to do that work to undo sexism and misogyny, part, part of like, the base of domestic violence. Not all of it, but again, a big part of the base of domestic violence. You're in touch with WPKN Radio. The show is What's Your Point? My guest is Kenyatta Thompson, Director of Organizing at Catal Center. The focus is on black women in the United States society today. I am Garnet Ankle. So how do we get beyond this, Kenyatta? How do we get beyond this domestic violence, black women being brutalized by their partner, respective of whether it's a, another woman or a man? Again, part of the way we see ourselves out of this is we have to radically reshape, one, how we just see black women. And again, black women continuing to take agency, continuing to take up as much space, continuing to exist as their full selves. Secondly, like investing in our black women. And that means both investing your time because time is precious and investing in their development, investing in business, investing in their want to have something different than what we have been given. And then, again, continue to address the sexism and misogyny and the unique ways in which that impacts black women. Like the things that black women hear, and I, I, I know we're on radio so folks can't see what I look like, I'm a dark-skinned black woman. I definitely have the whole, oh, you, you know, you're pretty for a dark-skinned woman, or you know, like even those little comments are, that's, like, there are multiple things we could go into. We could go into colorism right now, but it's like even those types of comments end up making it easier for black women to become targets. And this is why we have to undo all of those things while also, again, investing in black women, reshaping how our society even looks at black women. And we need all of us. Like, so I think, Garnet, at the onset of this call, you have said it very poignantly how this is going to be a call to focus specifically on black women, but if you are not a black woman or not a black person, you should still be listening to this and that. Like, we all have a part in this, and it does not mean that you speak for black women, but you make the space, especially if you are a non-black woman listening to this and trying to take some, some pointers, you make the space for the black women in your lives, even if they may not sound the way you want them to sound, they don't have to sound that way. Even if they don't dress the way you would like for them to dress, they don't have to dress any other way. Even if they don't wear their hair in a way that you find acceptable, let them be, let us be, and invest in us. And uh, Kenyatta, another thing I hear you saying, don't suffer in silence. Absolutely. That, um, sorry, I think to be filled with quotes today, but <laughs> um, I think it was a quote by Zora Neale Hurston who said, like, always speak up 
Because if you don't, they will kill you and say you enjoyed it. And so we can't suffer in silence. We have to be open with what's happening to us and be honest with ourselves because that's where it starts. A lot of people won't speak up when they're in domestic violence situations because they feel like, oh, you know, this person loves me or she loves me or he loves me or they love me. And that's not what love is. So we got to be honest with ourselves and, and it's okay to speak up. Black women, it is okay to speak up. So, uh, Kenyatta, the, the Me Too movement, what are your views on the Me Too movement and its impact on black women? I think the, if we're talking about the uprisings, I think the uprisings have had a positive impact on black women in that, again, you're seeing so many black women leading these movements. I'm inspired when I see pictures of what's been happening throughout Connecticut and like just localizing it here to what our state has done the uprisings and seeing so many young black women, seeing so many older black women, seeing so many black trans women who are leading movements, and I've had the pleasure to walk alongside of so many beautiful black women and femmes throughout this last year, and not just like walk alongside, but do the work alongside so many beautiful uh, black women and black femmes, and if anything, the latest uprisings, again, which are the, which have been the biggest in our history in America, for me, just shows the power of what we can accomplish and the power of black women. And, like, we are not going anywhere. I mentioned Stacey Abrams at the onset of this call. Stacey Abrams and company, um, and I say in company because she also had a team of women and black women, particularly, working with her to achieve the monumental history that she achieved in Georgia, um, and its implications on the rest of the country. And it's like, if anything, it's up, the uprisings and the current movement that we're in has shown that black women are here to stay, we are not going anywhere, and we will continue to lead even when people dismiss us from their table, because that is not what liberation is. Liberation is creating our own tables and making it so that this world works for us. So what are your thoughts on the United States having its first black female vice president in the history of this nation. This nation is over 244 years. It shows you how backward this nation is. We just have the first black woman as vice president. What are your thoughts? Yeah, first black woman, first Asian woman, um, and, and that's especially important to name um, given the, the recent hate crimes against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. So I, I just wanted to share that. Indeed. Historic, I will admit, like, historic, um, just to answer this really quickly, it is historic. Um, it feels as though ties are turning. And also, there are, no one is perfect, and there are a lot of things in Vice President Harris's history that are concerning, and namely her criminal justice reform policies, and her criminal justice uh, policies. And so I can hold the complexity of, this is a historic moment, and as a black woman, it feels really empowering. And also, we have to hold our elected officials, no matter what they look like, to the same standards of we have to make this country better for us. And representation is often sometimes used as a way to say, hey, things are so much better. Look at who we've got in the White House. And it's important for us to also know that representation is just one rung in, I don't even want to say it's like one rung, because I think that sometimes representation can, can be used to like 
keep us complacent and keep us like, oh, wow, things really are changing. So all that to say, I hold the complexity of it is a beautiful historic moment. And we've got a lot of work to make sure that not only um, Vice President Harris does their job, but the entire White House does their job for black people. Indeed. And uh, you're correct. We need to keep their feet to the fire and uh, yes she, uh-huh. uh, and uh, so we're running out of time and uh, we're we're going to have you back sometime in the near future to talk about that because uh, we need to talk some more about her history that's the vice president's history as the attorney general of the state of California and her history with that kind of thing about incarceration that kind of thing that's what you're talking uh-huh. about are you? Yeah. Yes, yes. So although we celebrate her, we still have to talk about the things that are not good so we can have change. But, you know, it's, it's a thing where she done, she had done before, so we need to even talk about it still, and you're correct. You know, so not because you think a person is good, we can still find things to say, you could be better, and, and that is very important. We can't be complacent in a time like this. Right. So, any final thoughts before we say so long? My only final thoughts is if you're listening to this and any of this resonated with you, feel free to learn more about the work that I do at the Paul Center for Equity, Health, and Justice. And you can find us at kapalcenter.org. That is K-A-P-A-L-C-E-N-T-E-R.org. And as always, thank you, Garnet. It is wonderful getting to chat with you. You are a phenomenal host, and I really enjoy being on your show and listening to your show. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, thank you so much, Kenyatta, for being on the show today. And uh, you're so very welcome. Thanks again for doing it. Thank you. You have been listening to a conversation surrounding the plight of black women in the American society since slavery. My guest was Kenyatta Thompson, Director of Organizing at the Cactal Center. I am Garnet Ankle. You can still find us right here at 89.5 FM and streaming at WPKN.org. But our new studios are already under construction in downtown Bridgeport, right next to the Bijou Theater, bringing improved technology and a more accessible location for our many volunteers. As you can imagine, it's a substantial investment, so we need your help. Just go on our website, WPKN.org, and click on the little red moving truck to donate. We promise to make it worth your while. This is FC Buzz on WPKN Radio. A brief look at what's happening around Fairfield County. This is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County and our weekly selection from FC Buzz events. 
the best guide to arts and culture in Fairfield County. Find it at culturalalliancefc.org. Sunday at 3, the Suzuki Music Schools continues its Pillow Talk concert series online, designed especially for children, with acclaimed jazz pianist Sumi Tanuka. Described by the New York Times as provocative and compelling, both in straight-out swinging situations and when she is developing fresh ideas for familiar ballads. Sunday at 1 and again at 7, the Ridgefield Playhouse screens the Cecil B. DeMille classic, The Ten Commandments, an epic film meant to be seen on the big screen. Universal acknowledged as a cinematic masterpiece with a legendary cast including Charlton Heston, Yul Brynner and Anne Baxter, this inspiring story of Moses was filmed in Egypt and the Sinai with one of the biggest sets ever constructed for a motion picture. Monday, 5 o'clock, the Aldridge Contemporary Art Museum offers a virtual first look at After the Mobile an indoor solo exhibition of 20 of the kinetic sculptures by Tim Prentice. The exhibition opens to members on Sunday and to the general public Monday, 12 to 5. In this virtual event at 5 o'clock, Prentice will be joined by his longtime collaborator, artist David Colbert, and exhibition's director Richard Klein, who curated the exhibition. Tuesday, 7 o'clock, the Westport Country Playhouse, as part of its New Works, New Voices series, presents online Phenomenal Women Inspire, an evening of original work written by community members about inspiring women who changed history. Four local storytellers, an artist, a teacher, the head of a nonprofit, and of a business, each of whose work within the community has affected many are paired with four locally-based theatre artists who will perform the work on stage at the Westport Country Playhouse. For details on these and hundreds more events, check FC Buzz Events at culturalalliancefc.org. This was FC Buzz on WPKN Radio. After some COVID hibernation and the reconstruction of our website, WPKN online community calendar is back. On it, you'll find curated listings of virtual and socially distanced live events in our listening area and beyond. And there's a form you can use to submit information about your event. To access the calendar, go to WPKN.org, click on Community, and then on Community Calendar. Clicking the event title will bring you to its description, location, and relevant links. Hello, I'm Rod Richardson, host of Radio Nothing, here every Tuesday from 9 a.m. to noon, and you're listening to WPKN in Bridgeport, 89.5 FM. Independent community radio, broadcasting from the campus of the University of Bridgeport. Also streaming at WPKN.org.